I want to say something to start tonight's class. I've thought about this a couple different times. Uh, I started out as a counselor in 1991. And in the early days, I, I wanted to do a lot of speaking and teaching. And I said something to somebody. I wanted to do a, a, a workshop on addictions with somebody. And she was a local addictions expert. And we sat down together to plan it out. And she said, so are you in recovery? And you know, I don't know if that question means anything to you, but what she's saying is, have I broken free from an addiction? She says, are you in recovery? And I said, well, yeah, but probably not the way you're thinking. And she said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, I'm, I'm walking in recovery from sin. And she's like, Pfft. and she's like, what a jerk you must be. That was our introduction to the conversation. At least that's how she conveyed it to me. Uh, that's our introduction to the conversation about the two of us working together. But the problem is the limitation of the words, I'm, in, I'm walking in recovery from sin. She has no idea about the context in my brain about how I mean that. And I mean that in some ways I want to convey to all of us tonight. There are some ways that I want to talk about the fact that all of us struggle with some kind of addiction and, and the reasons for that. And then there are some specific things to both chemical and behavioral addictions, relational addictions that I want to talk through that I think will be helpful for each person, whatever reason you came for, whether academically, personally, or relationally, if you want to know something about addiction that will help you either pass a test, love somebody who's addicted, or break free from your own addiction, I think we have some stuff for you tonight. But in particular, when I say that, um, if you've heard me teach before, and some of you have not, if you've heard me teach before, my, my belief and, and uh, practical perception of sin might be a little bit different than what you might have heard come out of my mouth. When I say I was walking in freedom from sin, I wasn't saying, gosh, I used to do bad things and I don't do bad things anymore. What I was saying is something that's been missing inside of me and caused me to do a whole bunch of things in my life that thing that was missing inside of me is no longer missing. And I've tried to figure out both from that moment through this moment right now, how to continue to live in such a way that that thing that was missing inside of me doesn't stay unavailable to me. And so what I was talking about was not, you know, trying to compare some behavior that I struggled with to cocaine. What I was talking about was a condition of the human soul that I want to talk about in great detail tonight that sets all of us up for this thing called addiction, and then some things about addiction that you may or may not have thought or, or experienced before, and, and specifically will target some issues in a relationship. So here's the thing I want you to hear about um, the thing that sets us up, and you'll recognize this again if you've heard some of our teaching here before, but in particular, I want you to think about creation. And by creation, what I mean is in the book of Genesis, you see that God reaches down into the dirt and picks up the dirt and forms this ball of dirt into the image of a man. And in that moment, God holds in his hands a something that's moments away from becoming a someone. And that something is just a man-shaped ball of dirt. Don't elbow the person next to you when I say that. Just go with me, okay? It's just a man-shaped ball of dirt. And, and the thing that makes that something become a someone is that God breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, never heard that before, or have what I would call um, superstitious beliefs about what I just said. But functionally, what I'm after is this. Something that was dead became alive because God breathed into it. That something didn't decide to attend church. 
that something didn't decide to behave better, that something didn't decide to clean up its act or perform in a certain way. It just inhaled the breath of God. And when that ball of dirt inhaled the breath of God, more changed than just pulse and brainwave activity. The things that changed in that moment that made that something a someone has far more to do with this thing called life than just this thing called biology. The thing called biology would say that its heart began to beat, its nervous system began to operate, its brain began to operate in certain ways. And with all those things taking place, it was functionally not dead anymore. But the thing that made the something a someone isn't just that it was not dead, but rather that it was alive. And what I want to talk about, if, if you've heard the teaching that I do called The Problem Jesus Came to Solve, a term that you'll hear me use tonight and throughout that teaching and a lot of teachings is, is what happened in that moment is that Adam became somebody because God was his source. And the term source is one that I feel sometimes uh, we underestimate or misestimate. So I want to talk about what I mean by source, but first let's take a look at this visually. So when the breath of God comes to Adam and the breath of God enters this ball of dirt, what happens is this ball of dirt that was just a something becomes a someone, and the breath of God from inside begins to work its way out. This is my goofy, weird brain, if you don't mind for a moment. Um, it's funny, my brain works like picture in picture. I don't know about you, but I just had like three other pictures pop up that have nothing to do with this class. <laughs> Thanks for letting me just like brush those aside, but in the meantime, um, picture a large, sponge shaped like a beach ball and if you could take a hypodermic needle and inject into the middle of that large round sponge water that water would begin to soak from the inside towards the outside making it dry on the outside soaked on the inside and increasingly wet from the inside out you have the picture in your mind this is fundamentally what happened to adam he started out just a dry ball of dirt and when God breathed the breath of life inside, something living, the Word of God is living and active, something living came inside of him in such a way that it made all of this alive, and it worked its way from the, outs, uh, from the inside out in such a way that this part of Adam became the soul, the will, the mind, the emotions, contained inside the body. So the mind is contained inside the brain and the nervous system. The emotions are contained in our chemical systems. Our will has various elements within both the brain and the nervous system. And so all those things became quickened or made alive by this breath that was moving from the inside out. And in that place, here's what I mean by source. In that moment, Adam was completely um, confident completely secure, um, completely safe, completely uh, sure of who he was. So the kinds of things we're after is the breath of God inside of him gave him security, identity, comfort, and by identity I'm talking about a sense of self or a sense of being. That's what that little squiggly line. It's not Hebrew. It's not Arabic. It's just my way of saying sense of being or sense of self. Comfort and strength. The breath of God gave Adam all of those things. When I talk about source, when I use the word source, the breath of God became his source. What I mean is that we all receive something into our being from which we derive security, identity, 
comfort, and strength. Now, do you see why this is so pertinent when it comes to this issue of addiction? Do you see why when we start to talk about substances, behaviors, and relationships that have compulsivity driving them, that what we're actually looking at is in some way we come to attach ourselves to something because we're all in search of these things. I'm going to, this is kind of getting ahead of myself, but a lot of times if you have not experienced a chemical addiction of any sort, a lot of times what we think is what's so great about what that, that chemical does for you that you would destroy your life to pursue that chemical. And what a lot of people don't know to ask is it's not so great about what it does for us, it's great about what it prevents. In other words, the opposite of these things is insecurity, emptiness, pain, and weakness. Most humans that I know will do almost anything not to experience those things. And the tension then, the tug-of-war, the human soul who comes into existence as an infant is at some point our family history and family relationships begin to inform us whether accurately or inaccurately there is something that will give you a sense of self. There is something that will give you a sense of comfort. There is something that will give you a sense of strength. And then I forgot the other one. What did I miss? Security. Security. Your family of origin communicates to you, usually covertly, the way that you can find those four things. And depending on your early life experiences and that, those family of origin messages, what can happen is if you look at someone who struggles with an addiction and you think, like the, like the Pharisee and the tax collector, you think, oh, thank God I'm not like that person. Just remember for yourself that there but for the grace of God goes every human on the face of the planet. So when I talked to that woman and said, I'm walking in freedom from an addiction to sin, I was not saying I used to have a bad habit that I'm now over. What I was saying is, I used to be empty on the inside and I was searching for these four things in multiple different ways, none of which seemed to work until I figured and learned and God came to me and showed me those things and became those things for me and gave me the opportunity on a daily, maybe moment by moment basis to yield to those things coming from Him instead of from what I might seek out. My schooling tells me that, um, and I like this word so I'm going to say it, that uh, addiction is a biopsychosocial uh, construct. Biopsychosocial construct. And I want to talk about all those elements and I want to talk about some spiritual things that I didn't learn about in school. And then I want to talk about some relational things and that will cover our time for tonight. We'll also do some ministry time at the end of this. Did you have a question? Yeah, can you tell us if it was easy? Say again? Can you tell me if it was easy? Like, was it easy? Was what easy? Uh, before we're done, I hope to answer that. The, the answer is yes and no. Um, let me, tell me your name. Stacy. Hi, Stacy. I'm Bob. Her question was, is it, was it easy to get those th- things filled? And I, let me tell you why I say yes and no. The answer yes is because it's really not something I do. My part of it is almost non-existent. What, what's hard about it is Surrendering and yielding is difficult. And that's the process that we're going to talk through tonight is what's the difference between what we can do and what we actually do when we surrender. 
So yes, it's easy on one level. It's absolutely impossible on another. And by impossible, I mean you can't do it. And that's the whole point. Does that help or frustrate you so far? Okay. I, I hope what you hear, let me just say this. The most common question, I'm, I keep being afraid I'm going to bump this thing, so I'm just going to step in front of it. The most common question when I would teach a freedom class and people come down afterwards, the most common question I get is, tell me what I need to do. You know, I, I teach on freedom from fear and someone come down and say, just tell me what I need to do to be free from fear. Freedom from depression. What do I need to do to be free from depression? And, and that's the kind of answer that people are looking for. And here's the thing. I'm not going to give that answer because actually the question, tell me what to do, is not a freedom question. Because freedom is something we receive from God, not something we bring to him. And so for us to do it, for us to become providers or actors in the process, we're actually pushing away the very thing we're after. What's hard isn't what has to be done. What's hard is that the human soul really struggles with surrender. I see enough smiles and nods when I say that, that most of us, if not all of us, have some idea of what I'm talking about. We'll talk more about that as the time goes on. So what I want you to get is this picture that all of us, every one of you in this room, every human every, ever born since Genesis 3, this is our condition, except we're missing inside here. We're, we come into the world missing that thing that's supposed to provide us these, and we're set on a course where we're hungry for all four of these, starved for all four of these, and we have trainers in front of us. We have educators in front of us who are going to tell us what they have learned in their lifetime about where to get identity, where to get comfort, where to get strength, and where to get security. That's why I wrote them on the board, because I, I can usually remember three, but a fourth one always escapes my brain. It's a different one every time. Um, so get this in your mind, because I'm about to erase it. But I want to talk about the bio-psycho part first, and then I want to talk about the social. One of the things that, um, when I talk about biology, there are aspects of addiction that are purely chemical. Now, um, I know that there is research out there that tells people that some people have a greater propensity for certain addictions than others. And some of that has to do with biology. Some of that has to do with what we wish was true. Now, what I mean by that is there are certain things about each of us that set us up for some things biologically, but far more often than that, I'm convinced that the reality is we are looking, and this is a, this is a significant component of addiction, we are looking for something that is not our will to be the problem. We want medicine. We want a chemical imbalance. We want something like that. And part of the problem is that dependence of any kind is the root of chemical dependence. Dependence of the soul is the root of behavioral or relational dependences that are unhealthy. And so the problem is, as soon as we seek to find something other than our will to be the key to this thing, we're, we're actually handing over the key that we most need in order to find freedom. So the chemical part, and here's one of the things I've observed over the years, um, uh, that different chemical addictions, alcohol, a variety of different drugs, things like that, most of them have a somewhat different effect 
And so if you talk to someone who's been a cocaine addict and talk to someone who's been an alcoholic and talk to someone else who's been um, a heroin addict, what you find out is that the physiological component of that drug actually has a different both psychological and physiological effect on them. And so there are ways that each one of those is so different. But here's the thing. I'm going to tell this story. Um, I had a friend years and years ago who um, cratered his ministry because of an addiction to prescription painkillers. And I remember being so mad at him. I was like, ah, you know, why, why are you, these are people we both love. And why are you going to let your desire for prescription painkillers do this to you? Specifically, it was prescription to narcotic painkillers. He'd started a while back because of a, a particular physical condition and it had just built up. The, his problem was no longer the, the physical condition, but the withdrawal every time he tried to not take the drug anymore. And this is a, over, is a prescription painkiller. And um, I remember just being so angry at him. I prayed something. I don't recommend this, but I prayed, God, help me understand. I know. And I meant it. That's, that's part of the problem is I meant it. And I didn't really think about it much. You know, I just, I thought, I don't understand why someone so gifted, so kind, and so um, able to lead was willing to, like, crash his whole ministry because he wanted one more of these. So one day, I'm, um, I, I developed a cough. And my doctor prescribed for me a narcotic cough syrup. And I did what the doctor said. I started taking my narcotic cough syrup. I just, I, I didn't, I didn't think it really helped, but the doctor said so. So for about eight days, I regularly took this narcotic cough syrup. And on day nine, I stopped because I don't remember if it was gone or my cough was gone. I don't really remember. I just remember I stopped. On day 10, I found myself, I was setting up my guitar to play at a worship thing somewhere in a, you know, in front of a couple, enough people that it would, should make, make me nervous. And I found myself not just nervous, but terrified and certain I was about to make an absolute idiot out of myself. Now listen, I'm not a great musician, but I'd played with these people multiple times over the years. And I found myself like plugging my stuff in, hearing this go through my head. You're about to make an idiot out of yourself. Who do you think you are to stand up here and play with these great musicians? And I'm hearing accusing voices go through my head that I've never heard before when I do this. I mean, I've been like, gosh, I'm nervous, that kind of thing. But I'm, I'm hearing like accusing voices, sharp, cruel, accusing voices. And then the thought goes through my mind, I sure could use another spoonful of that cough syrup. And I was like, I know what just happened. Insecurity, lack of identity, absolutely uncomfortable. In moments of weakness, I found myself hearing things that if I, if I hadn't had that split second of God speaking, I, I, what I think would have happened is I might have gone back and taken the cough syrup completely unconsciously and then recognized that it prevents the pain of what I was beginning to hear. Remember what I said a minute ago? That usually it's not about what the addiction provides for you, but what it prevents you from. Someone who's struggling with a chemical addiction, usually when they get start to uh, break the physical part of that addiction, people don't recognize the kind of pain physically, emotionally, and mentally that people begin to go through and why it is that you start, or why it is that they start to go back to it. How many of you have ever quit sugar? 
<laughs> two of you, see how, three of you, see how hard it is? If, if you have quit sugar before and over the next three to four days, you start to have either cravings or physical pain. You guys who quit sugar, you have physical pain? I did a, a, a cleanse about a year and a half ago where I quit sugar and caffeine on a Monday. On Friday, I spoke at a conference at a Christian educator's uh, facility, and I stood up and I said, guys, I just have to tell you, um, I, quit, I quit caffeine and sugar on Monday. I said, I, I'm doing okay without the caffeine and sugar, but anyone have a joint? <laughs> and they, they invited me back the next year, but I, maybe the teacher wasn't in the room at the time. But you know, the, the thing is, at some point, I mean, literally, I was having cramps in my neck and shoulders, and my head was killing me and my muscles were killing me because of physically detoxing just from caffeine and sugar. Some of you are going, just caffeine and sugar? But the point is that it's what I, I knew in my head that a good cup of coffee, which to me includes lots of sugar, a good cup of coffee would have made all that pain go away like that. How much more when the pain is insecurity and accusing voices and those kind of things that make you think you'll fail tomorrow without me. So for my friend who was struggling with narcotics, I suddenly had a very um, uh, empathic and experiential understanding of why he would crater his ministry because he believed, I'm convinced this could be, he believed his ministry was going to crater without the drug. He believed he needed the drug to perform the next day because that's what I was hearing is you're about to blow it. You're about to fail. And I didn't even connect to the drug until I had the thought. That makes sense? So the chemical part of it is we don't understand in more cases than not, we don't understand our nervous system enough to realize a lot of people don't know this. Um, one of the most medically fragile times in an alcoholic's life is when they're in their, uh, when their detox phase, if they're not getting medical supervision, they can die from detoxing from alcohol, depending on chronicity and intensity of use. They can, you can die from alcohol withdrawal if you're not getting medical supervision. And we look at people and go, can't you just decide not to drink? And the answer is I could, but I'm in an agony until I do. The physical part is more what happens to us, what, the, what, the, what performing the addiction one more time relieves us of. Now listen very carefully. Um, I want to talk probably a couple different times throughout the night about uh, pornography in particular because a lot of times we think of pornography as a behavioral addiction, but a lot of people don't realize the chemical changes that happens in a person's brain and body when they view pornography. It's as powerful a chemical reaction as it is a visual emotional reaction. And so what a lot of people don't realize, here's the problem with it, you don't have to go to the street corner to buy it, you can close your eyes and you're experiencing the chemical changes right then. You want relief, close your eyes, picture that thing, you have relief from whatever pain. That makes sense? So uh, the mistake I think we make is that the brain, we think the brain doesn't produce chemicals. Absolutely the brain produces chemicals. And you don't have to go purchase them from a dealer somewhere. You just do whatever act or thought produces that chemical in your brain. And so it's, you know, chocolate being the easiest one to think of. But all kinds of other behaviors that we perform changes our brain chemistry and therefore changes the way that we feel in terms of relief of pain. The physical part of addiction, we cannot ignore the reality of that. 
And the thing is, every addiction has a slightly different thing. I don't, I've never done heroin. I've never done cocaine. The narcotic thing, I only did it that one time on, under a doctor's prescription. But that was enough for me to have a great deal more respect than I did before for the power of certain drugs. Um, I still have a great deal of respect for caffeine and sugar. You know, after that week of muscles knotting and head pounding and anyway, um, sleeping not so well either. But um, So part of an addiction is physical and, and both, phys both chemical and neurological. Uh, removing someone's addiction places them in great pain and suffering physically. Bio, psycho. Let's talk about the psycho part for a minute. Psycho doesn't mean a movie with Anthony Hopkins. Is that his name? Anthony Perkins? And it was one of those. <laughs> yeah. Psycho is more about the psychological component. In other words, what are the cognitive slash psychological components of addiction? Um, <clears throat> if you think in terms of these different things psychologically, it almost can become self-explanatory. We all tell ourselves something. You told yourself something to be here tonight. You told yourself that being here was better than being some other place. You told yourself that being here, whatever you told yourself about being here, you, it got you here. The reality is we all tell ourselves, whether you say it verbally in your mind or not, we all communicate to ourselves. And that's what I mean by the psychological component. You learn in your family of origin what you believe will give you these things. So when we talk about the psychological part, part of what I'm after is this. Your mind has a series of thoughts and beliefs that tell you where to find security, identity, comfort, and strength. And so the argument is, the, the difficulty is, the bio part helps convince the mind. Remember, yesterday you drank the coffee and the sugar, and you didn't have these things being problematic. So the, the psychological part is significantly strengthened by the biological part. The psychological part is, I need this in order to blank. Me, let me give you, I, I always think, my communication is more basic than the pictures inside of my heart, so I want to try to get a little less basic. Um, when I talk about the things that we tell ourselves, some of the things we tell ourselves are conscious. Dang, I sure could use a cup of coffee. But a lot of the things we tell ourselves, in fact, the most damaging things we tell ourselves are unconscious, and we don't even realize them until either someone helps bring them to the surface or until we say it out loud for the first time and we recognize what we've just said. For me to hear the words in my head, I sure could use another spoonful of that cough syrup. But here's the other thing. I tell the story in my class Levels of Change about the woman who, um, who had been abused by her brother and her father. And she had this thing she told herself for years that women are weak, women are victims, and I cannot be one. And in the pain of, a, of listen to what that's about, right? In the pain of denying her identity, in the absence of identity, she sought for these other things in other places and found herself with both eating disorders and chemical addictions while still denying the fact that she was a somebody, and specifically a female somebody. The thing she told herself wasn't just, I need to, um, to binge and purge. The thing she told herself wasn't just, I need alcohol to not hurt. The thing she told herself was, I am nobody if I'm a woman. And then subtly within that, she began to search for these things in a variety of different ways, not because she thought, um, <clears throat> I need the substances, but because she was craving this and feeding all of these things with counterfeits. So let me go back to the idea of porn. 
Gosh, most people think porn's about porn. Um, I'm, I'm really like, I'm on a quest to figure this thing out because I'm watching it consume our world. I don't know how much you guys know about stats and the kind of things that are happening. One of the things is not just consuming our world, it's consuming our brains because the changes in both male and female brains, when they view that stuff, can rewire things. And it's, by the way, so, I don't have my phone, it's right there. There's my phone. Did you see me reach for it? <laughs> my friend Alan, you guys know Alan Smith, he talked about fasting from his iPhone. He said, I can't tell you how many times I'd reach in my pocket. He actually literally switched his plan over to a flip phone. It's kind, of, it's kind of like snapping yourself with a rubber band, right? You reach in your pocket and it's flip flops. Like, what, what is this, this monstrosity? But anyway, um, even those alone without pornography are rewiring the human brain. Our attention span is getting shorter. The ways that we think are getting smaller. And all of those things change our culture and our relationships. And in turn, our, our culture and relationships are changed by those things. Did I say that right? It's a circular relationship. If I didn't say it right, that's what I meant. Our brains affect culture. Culture affects our brains. And we continue to feed a diminishing of our thought capacity. Well, what happens with pornography is it diminishes our relational capacity. And in a little bit, you're going to see why relationships are cr so crucial to the addiction process, to the healing from addiction process. So the psychological part is our mind is telling us that we need something. When it comes to pornography, like I said a minute ago, for the most part, it's not about sex and it's not about images. It's about gender, i.e. for women, it's about feeling like a woman. For man, it's about feeling like a man. And in many cases, it's about fatherlessness or motherlessness. Listen, I'm not giving a formula. Please don't walk out of here and go, ah, there's the key to the thing. What I'm telling you is it's about the absences inside of our soul and not all of the absences are about stimulus and orgasms. When I, does it make sense why I say that and, and what I'm talking about? The, the things that people are needing to fill their, fill their souls with are father and mother, masculinity and femininity in healthy ways, so that they're not seeking out those things in counterfeit ways. It's not, it's in most cases, it's not about orgasms. It's about self. It's about identity, which then is connected to mother and father. I'm just going to stick my neck out there and say, in most of the cases that I work with hands-on, it's about fathers. I don't want some father out there to beat himself up. That's not my point. But my point is that men are supposed to give life and if you grew up in an environment where your father didn't know how to give life or in, in worst case gave death, then what you carry around in here is not just a vacancy, but a vacancy of a very specific thing. And so when we seek that out in a gender specific way, when we seek that out in a father specific way, and we're looking, guys, let me talk to guys for a minute, we're looking for some way to feel like a man. Let's listen very carefully. Sexual stimulus makes you feel like your gender. A sexually stimulated man feels like a man because that's what those chemicals do. A sexually stimulated woman feels like a woman because what, that's what those chemicals do. And so when you're feeling not yourself in those kinds of ways, searching for that, it, you know, it's not about necessarily the sexual activity, like I said a minute ago. It's about recognizing that you're searching for this and these things along with it. 
So we'll come back. So biopsycho. The psycho part is what your mind tells you. And part of why I took some time to explore that a little bit is because I want to push you below just the basic. Your mind tells you, I want cocaine. Your mind tells you, I want you know, whatever the addiction is, I want you to look below that and understand that the psychological part is usually not about the substance, the behavior, the relationship. The, the psychological part is about the pursuit of some version of these things and the way that you learned it in your family of origin. Let me push it one other piece of this, two other pieces of this. I've often taught about birth order. And how birth order shapes personality. You know, how oldest children have a particularly overdeveloped sense of responsibility and in some cases an underdeveloped sense of humor. How uh, middle children have a propensity to kind of disappear and therefore struggle to feel like they have value or get seen. And youngest children are often the ones who get attention by being cute and funny or believing they are. And those are ways that our family of origin shapes how we see ourselves. But can you see how each of those things then shapes where we get this, 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 and this from? Even your birth order and then the kind of family you grew up in has that message that says, hey, for me, I'm a youngest child. So I'm, I'm trying not to do my usual youngest child cute thing. But, you know, so as a youngest child, one of the things that happens is when I get stressed, I get like I make jokes. When, when things are tense, I tend to, you know, get kind of like a clown. When, when I am feeling pressure from the outside, I look to get people's attention. And all those things are simply an amplification of this in the youngest child, uh, in the youngest child capacity. Yeah. And so all those things are the subtleties of our family of origin. Here's what happens to us then. Now add addiction to your family system. And we're going to talk about that in great, at great, great length when I get past the bio-psycho part because we'll talk about the social part. It's the thing I feel the most like weight on tonight. But um, imagine for a minute you're already in a family with addictive processes taking place in the family. I'm just going to say most of you are. And the reason I say that is where we began tonight, and that is to say the human soul comes in set up for addiction. Unless people really learn meaningful, helpful ways to tend to their own soul and make sure that they can get these four things in healthy ways regularly throughout their life, at some point, all of us will lean towards some level of compulsivity. But if addiction is rampant in your family system and begins to be passed down through the generations, one of the things you'll find out is you might actually not be addicted to a substance or a behavior. You may be actually addicted to people. Because what happens is, depending on which child in the family system you are, you might be the one who helped dad out when his drinking got out of control. And now the place you get security, identity, comfort, and strength is from helping other people out. It's called codependency. It's just a fancy word, one that I don't really like, but I just don't have a better word that, that communicates in the English language. But all it is is an addiction to other people's needs. Talked to somebody the other day who said, um, I don't take good care of myself, so I feel anxiety. And I said, what if it's the other way around? What if you feel anxiety so you don't take good care of yourself? Because the other thing you learn when you take care of the addict in your family is you learn not to take care of you. So taking care of you makes you feel anxious. Taking care of someone else makes that anxiety come down. See, addiction is always about what it prevents, not about what it provides. 
Now, it may provide certain things, but the reason it drives us so much is because we don't easily endure pain. Biopsycho, let's talk about the social part for a couple minutes. Now I'm going to erase this because, but don't lose that image in your mind. We'll come back around to this and we'll even uh, talk, uh, talk about it in some of these next images. What I want to draw for you is <clears throat> this, this picture. If you've been in my teaching at all, and you'll see this again in our class called uh, Overcoming Life Patterns, but this is a picture of a family or an organization or a culture. Take your pick. And the way I want you to think about this is that this line around this defines insiders and outsiders. So if this is a family, let's make this my family for a couple minutes. Sorry, mom. Um, she always watches, so I had to say that. So um, <clears throat> let's make this my family. So this doesn't mean we're the hemp so nobody else gets in. What that means is there are certain things that make us unique from the rest of you. And one of those things is none of you get to see my hair on Saturday morning. At least not till I've showered, right? After I've showered, you guys all get to see, you know, as much as you want. But inside here, they all get to see. They all get to like be around me when I haven't brushed my teeth, haven't taken a shower for a couple days, haven't, sh I mean, the, the insiders in the family, families share some things that, that they don't share with outsiders. Does that make sense? And so some families share more than others. You know what I mean? So if the family boundary is like this, <clears throat> and that family is in a restaurant three tables away from you, their kid is the one asking if they can have your chicken nuggets. This family is sharing more with the world than the average family because their boundaries are diffuse. And because their boundaries are diffuse, the family just kind of takes over whatever space they occupy. Not only that, but anyone can come into their family. So their doors are usually open. They've usually got food for a bunch of people. The family boundaries like this. Now, that's not my main point. My main point is actually about the internal boundaries of an addictive family. Usually in addictive families, more like this. Because <clears throat> they've got secrets. And as long as they're secrets, they don't want people to know their secrets, so they lock down tight. And so even when they are out in public, what you see is that they're all kind of to themselves. And when people come to their house, everyone's kind of on a particular way of behaving. And the idea would be this. Everybody in the house knows that normally dad beats the kids. But nobody will dare say anything but, hello, father, how are you? Hey, the Smiths are here. Hi, Smiths, come on in. And everyone behaves as if they're out in public when they're in private until the strangers leave. And when the strangers leave, they go back to the dysfunction. That's what this boundary represents. Everybody got that? Here's the real point. Inside the family looks like this. And all this means is that in an addictive family system and in addictions, people's identities are poorly formed. They're formed more by unhealthy connections to one another than by actually being who they are. Now, <clears throat> keep that image. We're going to come back to it. I want to talk about um, this idea that emotional health, mental health, spiritual health, takes this one specific track. People move from dependence to independence to interdependence. 
dependence is a child in a mother's womb all the way up through an 18, well, I guess 26 according to the insurance policy, but up, you know, up to 18, 20 years old, depending on what, what, you know, what decade you're talking about. But from a mother's womb, you see the dependency on the blood flowing through their system. You see that they get their security, identity, comfort because they're living in a place where all their needs are met. They're warm, they're, they're tightly held there. And when they're born into a family, they begin the process that's supposed to go like this. They're fully dependent, but they're supposed to move to independence. And from independence, once that happens, they can move to interdependence. Now, I wanna, I wanna, does that make sense relationally to everybody? Here's the dilemma. Dependence is dependence no matter what the target is. So someone who's not made the leap from dependence to independence is prone to depend on anything. Let me make some sense out of that. <clears throat> um, my kids are 25 through 31 at this point. I just want to tell you, none of them sleep in my bed. <laughs> Y'all are going, so what's the, <laughs> but let me, let me just say, I've had a few conversations with people over the last several years about the difference between putting an infant to bed and letting it cry itself to sleep versus holding the child, letting it fall asleep, letting it stay in bed with you and keeping it in bed so that it doesn't cry and doesn't have problems sleeping. And most of them say, well, everyone has a different preference to which I would say, okay, that's true. But let's take into account this idea of dependence to independence to interdependence. And let's put inside, put in that context, what happens when a child is frustrated and trying to get to sleep? When a child is, fr you know, I, did I mention I'm a grandfather? Yeah. So I babysat my grandson for the first time last week. And that means that, you know, we were left with a bottle, not my daughter. Like my daughter wasn't present. So when he was hungry and crying, it was my job to make him not cry. <clears throat> and so um, in the process of trying to make him not cry, he's got all this emotional upset and he's looking to me to manage his internal emotional state, which is completely appropriate for a three-month-old, absolutely <clears throat> inappropriate for a two-year-old. Let me say that again. When it comes to managing your own internal emotional state, it's appropriate for a three-year-old to look to someone else to do it. It's not appropriate for a two-year-old to look to someone else to do it. And it's absolutely dysfunctional for an 11-year-old, an 18-year-old, or a 57-year-old to look to someone else to do it. Let me, let me make a social application to that. When we look to something outside of us to manage our internal emotional state, we're clinging to immaturity and clinging to dependency and we're not moving to independence. The move from dependence to independence is the first most crucial step towards emotional health and well-being. Independence is, I know where to get this and it's not you. Interdependence is, I can live in relationship with other, other people that we trust and grow and connect, but you're still not my, remember the first word we started with, source. You're not my source, you're just, you know, we leave our mother and father, cleave to our spouse, and what that means is they're not our source, they're just our partner. And so the, the move from dependence to independence that I'm talking about, I hope you're hearing the connection and why this matters in terms of addiction. Dependence on someone else to manage your emotional state internally transfers to dependence on something else to manage your internal emotional state. 
So when you don't learn in those early stages of life, when you don't learn that you can manage your emotional world, you look to someone else and eventually to something else to settle you down on the inside. And you, if you don't learn that you can do that, you can spend the rest of your life looking for a person, a substance, a behavior, a relationship, or a social philosophy. <laughs> That's as far as I'm going politically tonight. You can look for those things to settle your internal experience. And if you're looking to those things to settle you, you have stayed in the most immature state of existence. Now, let me, let me put this in context. So what you end up with is you end up with people who are all looking to each other to make each other okay. And it's one thing to live together and enjoy it. It's another thing to, if you, remember the um, big fat Greek wedding, right? And the 29-year-old daughter wants to move out and the father's like, why you want to leave me, right? That's this guy going, I'm not okay without my 29-year-old daughter. And what does that tell us about dependence from, to independence to interdependence? That says that both her dad and her are in this state of dependence. Here's why this matters so much. It's my fancy eraser. I want to take a moment to talk about this diagram at a smaller level. Let's just take two people. And for tonight's purposes, I'm going to make this the addict and this the codependent. Now, again, I've already said this, but I want to emphasize it for a moment. They're both addicts. I just want to show you the dynamic that happens here. And you'll see how if this is actually five people inside a family or 37 people inside a church culture, whatever it might be, the way that we relate to each other is distinctly connected to this dependence to independence, and therefore it's distinctly connected to our ability to manage our internal world or our expectation that other people will do it for us. So here's what happens. The addict is full of pain. Those are minus signs. The codependent's full of pain too, but their solution to that pain, or their solution to that pain has been to come up with all these different ways of handling things. And then what happens is, by the way, these two people need each other. A lot of people recognize that the addict needs the codependent, but it's also true the other way around. So what happens is, a lot of times when there's distance here, this person gets better from their addiction. It's a very frustrating thing, but I want to explain something before I should talk about that. So here's what happens. This person and this person make a covert agreement that they're going to trade. Now, by covert agreement, they don't like do a handshake and say, hey, I have pain, you have solutions, you want mine and I'll give you yours. What they do is this one says, if you wouldn't be so harsh with me, I wouldn't drink. Therefore, my pain is really yours. And they say, okay, I'll be nicer, and therefore my solution is yours. If you wouldn't be so distant from me, I wouldn't turn to pornography. Okay, I'll do all these things to try to keep you from looking at pornography. You see what's happening? They're trading. What they're doing is it's, it's a 
It's just two people inside that larger family system where there's this covert agreement. Nobody says you can have my pain. What they say is you're responsible for my pain. If you wouldn't do this, I wouldn't struggle. And when the codependent person says, oh, look, I'm relieved from anxiety when I help other people, they say, well, I'm great at that. So let me just adjust so that you don't struggle anymore. Here's the, you guys see the problem, right? The problem is there's not enough pluses that belong to somebody else to make this person who they are. That's the first problem. The second problem is this person has a finite amount of pluses and at some point hits the wall and that's when they find counselors or come to a class on addictions. Because my theory is most of you aren't here because you have an addiction. You're here because you're looking for solutions for someone you love who has an addiction. I don't know that to be true. I'm not asking, and I hope I'm wrong in many cases, but my experience is that the people who seek help are these people who want to give the pluses to the one who doesn't want to seek help. Now, you've heard this before. The addict has to hit rock bottom in order to get well. Here's all that means. They have to A, run out of other people's pluses, and B, begin to pay a price for their minuses in such a way that nobody bails them out. Because if they can get pluses from you, if they can get all the positives from you, there's not enough pain to motivate them to the thing that we'll talk about at the very end tonight, which brings about change and freedom. As long as, listen, here's what I tell people. They'll say, hey, my spouse or my son or my mother has a problem. And I'll say, no, they don't. They'll say, oh, yeah, they have a problem. They drink, they whatever. I say, no, no, they don't have a problem. Their life is easy. You have their problem. And unless you give them back their problem, they can't ever solve it because you're holding it for them. Until they have a problem, they will never get over their problem. Dependence to independence is those opportunities throughout parenthood and a maturing process where parents have the opportunity to let their kids suffer their own pain from their choices or to cover for them and the parents take on the pain for the child's choices. And the early soil in which addictions grow is the failure on everybody's part to make that shift from dependence to independence. Interdependence, this person would come up and say, let's say that this person's made that leap to interdependence, and this person comes up and says, hey, um, if you weren't so mean to me, I wouldn't drink. And that person says, wow, I'm sorry you believe that. I'll try to be nicer, but your drinking is your choice, not mine. That person has come to a place where they can be in connection with somebody, but not be dependent on them to, to, for them to have this covert agreement of exchanging. So it's this thing here, this is the soil in which addictions grow, is this failure to move from dependence to independence. So bio, the chemical part, psycho, what your brain tells you, social, the relational part of addiction, I think, is kind of the newest arena where people are really starting to dig in now and recognize. Because here's the thing. This is the broken version of this. But more importantly, just like we said, um, well, I don't know that I said it this overtly, with both the bio and the psycho, the addiction is a counterfeit of a legitimate need. 
One of the reasons it's difficult to help someone with an addiction is they don't want you to take away the thing they have because they believe they need it. And in some, de some de degree, they do need it because they have a need for these things and they found a counterfeit. You offer to take that away and at first they go, oh yeah, because I hate it. But then all it takes is 12 hours without it and these things start to really settle in, the, the opposites of these things, and they go, ooh, ooh. The addiction would prevent my emptiness, my insecurity, my, my sense of weakness, and my discomfort. I'm now faced with a choice. Do I look to someone else to give me their pluses? Do I look to the addiction? Or do I, this sounds silly, but I hope, it, I hope you hear it, like the infant who learns to cry itself to sleep, do I learn how to manage my own internal emotional experience? Do I learn how to manage in my relationship to God and in healthy relationships with other people, I'm responsible for the consequences I brought into my life. And I'm going to learn how to manage the pain that I'm facing day by day until the pain starts to diminish and I can find the real thing take place of the counterfeit. Am I helping you, Stacy? Yeah. <laughs> she says, yeah, you're helping. It's, it's, yeah. You just said accepting the responsibility. Yes. When you go back to the initial jokes in life that started this, where does that accepting the responsibilities come into? So if I hear you right, here's what I would say to that. And if I'm not hearing you right, ask it again. Okay. All of us have been through things that we didn't choose. But as grown-ups, we choose what we do with the things we've been through. Right. So I choose whether or not to forgive. I choose whether or not to release judgments. I choose whether or not to enter into my own freedom journey. And at some point from my move from dependence to independence, there comes a point where I can no longer look at someone else and say, I am this because of you. I I, my choice isn't about what happened to me. My choice is now about how I manage what happened to me. And that's the hard part. Yeah, and I'm going to, but I'm still going to get to the hard and easy. That'll be the very last thing we do tonight, the surrender part. Go. Because the confusion of blaming the others and the consequences of what really happened. Yeah. Let me, if you haven't figured this out, follow me on Twitter. Um, you'll know some of the stuff I'm going to talk about the next time I talk. I, I tweeted this just this afternoon. Blame is, the, blame is the language of addiction. Responsibility is the language of freedom. Okay. Blame is look what they did, which is a form of dependence. Responsibility is look what I have control of. Or look what yeah, or look what happened, but I recognize that I am not what happened, and I also recognize that even if it was a terribly painful thing, I now have a responsibility to manage my soul. I buy a house that was bombed. How sad that it was bombed, but it's now mine. I can, I can rebuild it. Right. Or I can sit there and say, somebody fix my house. Because somebody else bombed it, somebody else fix it. But it's that propensity to say, and by the way, I'll just say, Cautiously, but not so cautiously. This is one of my grave concerns with socialism. Is that socialism is rooted in dependence and fails to create the natural healthy development from dependence to independence to interdependence. The idea that things will be provided from the outside and that my responsibility doesn't matter. If blame is the language of addiction and responsibility is the language of freedom, then responsibility is a very important word. 
And I am responsible for certain things in my life. There are certain things I'm not, but the things that matter for my freedom and yours, you're responsible for yours and I'm responsible for mine. That doesn't, here's what it doesn't mean. I'll talk about that end of the night about what it does mean. It doesn't mean that you better gut it up and you better start doing different. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tells you about your responsibility and your will. Before we're done, I'll talk about that in a different way that I, that I hope will be helpful. So, but I want you to hear the relational part and how crucial this is. This little dynamic right here is not a little dynamic because it starts early. And when, you know, how many of you guys saw the movie uh, Inside Out? Brilliant movie. Um, I wish they would do the same story about someone who grew up in a horrible situation and got free. This little girl grew up in an idyllic situation, had a, a, a minor trauma in her 11th year of life, and kind of the journey of the inside of her psychological self through, that, uh, through her childhood, the trauma, and the recovery of that trauma. And um, in that movie, there's a moment where the dad is... Um, the dad is struggling with his job and the mom comes to the daughter and says, hey, daddy needs you to be strong for him. It sounds simple and it sounds sweet, doesn't it? But they do such a fantastic job in the movie of just showing, you know, um, the girl's face sinks and then she smiles big like, all right, I'm going to fake it from now on for daddy's sake, and she's just done this. The family theorists talk about the um, undifferentiated ego mass of family, and what they're referring to is within our family, we all kind of tie these knots to each other where I need you to be good to make me happy. You know, uh, kind of, I, I know, I'm, I'm a recovering pastor, um, which means I have children who are children of a recovering pastor. And all that means is, you know, sometimes in a setting like that, and I'm not talking specifically about my family, I'm looking at another recovering pastor in the back of the room. You know, sometimes in a setting like that, the pressure on people's kids to be something for the sake of their father or mother, for their reputation, it all becomes this, and it's absolutely dysfunctional to put that kind of pressure on a child to protect your reputation. Listen, uh, a misbehaving child, uh, um, prodigal child, which I hate the, that word, not because it's not a biblical word, but it's become such a weird word in today's culture. The child who's doing all that kind of destruction has nothing to do with you because you are responsible for you and they are responsible for them. And so it's not a black mark on someone's reputation if your child is acting bad. But how many of you, I remember this, when your kids, when your kids are little and they start to cry in a restaurant or cry in church and you feel that, what Brene Brown calls that warm wash of shame. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, oh, I need to make my child behave because I feel funny with the attention that's coming from my kid crying. And in that, we're somehow kind of in this broken, weird way taking responsibility for the fact that our kid's an infant. Infants cry. They do a lot of other things that fill the room with noise and odors. You know? And if we carry the weight of our reputation being based on our children's maturity, immaturity, or dysfunction, you know, we're going to put weight on them that was never designed for a child's soul. Dependence to independence to interdependence. The ability to live in healthy relationships. And the interdependence part of it is crucial too because of this. This is what we're not supposed to give... <coughs> But what we are supposed to give is human connection. 
And I think one of the things that bothers me the most about where our culture has arrived is just the absence of connection in most human relationships. We are on Facebook Live. We love you. We don't connect to you because you're on the other side of the country. Even sitting in this room, you might be sitting next to people. And the question, you know, I'm not trying to shame anyone else. I'm just trying to say, we've forgotten and we've all become like giant elevator riders. You know what I'm talking about, right? Get on the elevator and you try to pretend that you're six miles apart when you're all inside four feet of space. And we, we are so intent on disconnection that we go, which four are you? Number two, okay. And we're, we get so disconnected. The, the point is, Giving the negatives and exchanging the positives is dysfunctional, but so is giving nothing. Human relationship is one of the most necessary contexts of emotional and spiritual and psychological health. God didn't make Adam and just hope he saw it through to the end of Revelation. He told him to be fruitful and multiply and to populate the earth. And in doing that, he's saying, all of you are part of something bigger than yourselves. Link arms, link hearts, link minds, not in a dependent way, but in an interdependent way, and cover the world with God's nature. And instead what we do is we retreat to our different places. We let the pain of our history just tell us how we're going to protect ourselves and what we're going to protect ourselves with. And what we end up doing is we just multiply and fertilize the soil in which addiction grows. Let's talk about, I'm going to go all the way. I feel like I'm missing a piece, but I'm not going to stand here and ponder for three minutes while you wonder what I'm missing. Let's go back to this. Ball of dirt. God breathes the breath of life inside the ball of dirt. Flows outward from there. This becomes the mind, the will, and the emotions. I want to talk about the will for a couple minutes because this is the thing. Oh, I haven't said much about the spiritual side yet, have I? I did in one sense, but I, I want to say one more thing about it. Gosh, I should look this up. Someone tell me, Romans 8, Romans 12. God has not given us over again to a spirit of bondage, but instead he's given us a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Where is that found? Someone. It's not a test, just... Romans. <laughs> Romans. <laughs> nice. It's in the book of Romans. I think it's 8. I'm fairly sure it's 8. Regardless, you know, here's, here's the thing. Not all, but much of my reading of Scripture where we deal with spirits, one of the things I've observed is that often what you see is that there's a, there's a thing that God's Spirit is designed to do, and there's a counterfeit that demonic spirits put in place instead. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. And so the opposite of fear isn't courage, the opposite of fear is love. So a spirit of fear, you don't overcome a spirit of fear by courage. You overcome a spirit of fear by love, right? Opposites. So what is the opposite of a spirit of bondage? God's not given us a spirit of bondage, but he's given us over to a spirit of adoption by which our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. The heart that cries out, Abba, Father, is the one that's completely surrendered to his infilling breath where we find from him, we get this, 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 and this in an uninterrupted way. In other words, the spirit of adoption 
is the solution to the spirit of bondage. The spirit of bondage is that which drives us into the kind of bondage of compulsivity, addiction, relational, uh, relational chemical, and habitual addiction. That spirit of bondage drives us into that because that spirit wants to come in and substitute and say, I'll give you security. And here's a substance, here's a behavior, here's someone you can fix to give you security. I'll give you a sense of identity. I'll give you comfort and strength. And it gives you those things from all the count. And so that spirit just connects and it just whispers in your ear, I have a way for you to not be in pain. I have a way for you to be somebody. And whatever it hands you is the counter opposite to what the spirit of adoption would give you, which is real comfort, real strength, real identity, and real security. Romans 8.15. Thank you. Ah, smartphones. They do have good purposes. So here's the thing. How many of you guys are at least familiar with the 12 steps? Okay. What's the first one? Admitted I was powerless over, the, you know, drugs. Right. right. Number one, I can't do it. I have lost all control. What's number two? You guys hear him? Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Listen to what those first two steps just described. My will is not enough. My mind, my will, and my emotions have failed. I give up on them. I believe that something from outside of me can do more for me than something from inside of me. Now, this is my goofy mind again, and then we'll, we'll end with the time of prayer and ministry, but... Uh, in my house in Keller, we used to have wasps, lots of them. I tried and tried. I loved, well, I, I would shoot them with the killer stuff, but you know they'd grow back just like weeds in the yard. And so I finally, someone told me they make wasp traps. And a wasp trap, you know, it's shaped like a cone going into a canister, and inside there, there's something that wasps like, and they can get in the cone because it's shaped like this, and they climb in there, but then they can't get back out. That got the picture in your mind. I think in the garden, our will was shaped like that. And the breath of God had easy entrance. And we didn't have to labor to receive, contain, and broadcast the breath of God to the earth. It was as natural and easy, and there's the easy part of the answer to your question. It was natural and easy as inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Because our will wasn't in a place where I said, do this, don't do this. My will was un in the on position. It was switched to a place where it was constant receive. Now listen, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that Adam and Eve ate from in the, in the garden in chapter 3, the knowledge of good and evil did a number of things to us, but I believe one of the things it did to us is it took our will that was shaped like this and turned it like this. And now, in case you weren't looking, will that's shaped like this is shaped like this. And now what happens is instead of receivers, we become initiators. I do what's right, I fight to not do what's wrong. And I use my will to try to make things instead of allowing my will to receive someone. And so someone goes, oh, then what do I have to do to receive? And do you hear how the question, what do I have to do to receive, isn't even a helpful question. Receiving 
It's not a passive act, but nor is it an active initiative. I'm going to give you this. Was that hard? Who did most of the work? But if you'd done nothing, it would still be on the floor, right? So receiving wasn't hard. I did most of the work. But receiving is not the same thing as giving, right? So I'm going to let you hang on to that for a little bit. But receiving is the step one and step two of the 12 steps. I, my will, shaped like this, my initiative, my effort, my mind, will, and emotions cannot create a filled place in here because emptiness comes from me. It's the functional equivalent of you trying to reach underneath your own feet and pick yourself up off the ground. I went to a conference a while back and the, the guy who in, invited me said, I don't care what you talk about, but do that thing. I said, that thing, he said, you know, the thing where you say you can't reach up underneath your feet and pick yourself up off the ground. The problem for all of us is that we actually believe we can. Not the physical act of picking ourselves up off the ground, but because we can get ourselves out of bed, make ourselves make breakfast most of the time. Certainly we can get the coffee made. Because we can make ourselves do that, we also think we can make ourselves full when it's actually our emptiness that we're in trouble from. So my initiative to try to get well is the problem. The knowledge of good is as destructive as the knowledge of evil because both of them try to make me the initiator instead of the receiver. Starting to see the hard part? The easy part is God reaches out to us with everything that we need and he, he puts it right in front of us. And everything about us wants to go, oh, yeah, I can do that. Thanks for showing me. I'll do that. Or even depending on where we are, we may go, I don't need that. Or you do want it, but something else in this search says we actually start to believe I'll lose identity, I'll lose security, I'll lose comfort, and I'll lose strength if I depend. And that's one of the fundamental lies of the human soul is that dependency is weak. In the, in the dependent to independent to interdependence, the one place we never lose our dependence is this. But it's this that allows us to become independent because I am responsible. I, I probably wasn't at age two, but I'm older than two now. I don't know if you guys can tell. I'm older than two now. I'm now responsible for managing my soul, and I have to learn the process of moving from initiative to surrender. Giving up is harder than accomplishing. Because it feels like death. Quick story, then we'll pray. Um, talk about this in another class, but uh, if you've not read Ted Decker's trilogy, the, I guess there's a fourth book now, but it was at first it was black, red, and white, and it's a trilogy that's an ongoing metaphor, right, Jess? It's an ongoing metaphor that's just of the fall and the, the period of time after the fall and the redemption, and then the, the disciples following Jesus through, the, through into the redemption, and it's a, a phenomenal story. There's a moment in there where the, where the person who's the Christ figure has told his followers if the, the it's, it's the equivalent to the crucifixion scene, they, and they you know they're not going to see him again for a while. He says, "The next time you see me, follow me." And in this in this particular story, the people who have fallen, their skin is all white and ashy, and so there's a visual representation of the the emptiness of the the inside of the soul is shown on the outside of the body, 
And, he's, and he says to his followers, next time you see me, follow me. And a couple months go by and his followers are gathered on the shore. And they see the next time they see him, the bad guys are about to kill him. You know how they're going to kill him? They tied him to a board and they were going to drown him in the lake. So they out in the middle of the lake, they start lowering his body underwater. And one of the guys on the shore hears the words in his mind. The next time you see me, follow me. And he's like, if I follow you, I will drown. <laughs> but he keeps hearing the words in his mind. If the next time you see me, follow me. And finally, he just, he can't stand it anymore. He swims out to the middle of the lake, dives down. And as, as Ted Decker describes the scene, he, there, he reaches a point where he knows if he turns around, he could go back up but he keeps going down, knowing that he's about to run out of oxygen and he's about to inhale water. And in the moment where he finally gives up and inhales water, everything goes black and he opens his eyes again and his skin is starting, the white's starting to come off and his skin is starting to be made pink and, and clear again. Whatever color it is in the book, I don't remember. I, I just bit my tongue on several things. You'd be so proud of me. Um, but what's happened is this. The next time he saw him would take him to his own death. And everything about him resisted that. But he finally followed, went to the bottom of the lake, surrendered, and died to come back to life. Listen, you've probably been told throughout your life that Jesus died on the cross so you wouldn't have to. That's not really the truth. Jesus died on the cross to show you how to. Freedom from anything does not come from initiative. It comes from surrender. And surrender isn't just about, okay, I'll do the things you say. It's about, I give up on me. And it feels like death, but the result is life. Let's pray. Lord, the world has um, become darker and darker, it would seem. And the things that war against your life inside of us just seem to gain momentum. They war against our mind. They war against our hearts. They fill us with images and sensations and promises of strength and comfort. We try again and we find that we're dying. We turn to you for life and the only thing we know is to try harder again at the things you say. And then that doesn't seem to work because trying has never been the target. So Lord, I can't speak for anybody in this room tonight but me. But I want to give us all an opportunity to respond. So Lord, some of us tonight have found ourselves so addicted to helping an addict that we fear we will die if we stop helping.
Lord, it feels like diving into a lake and swimming past the point of no return. But our compulsive need to help them has been filling an empty place in us that only you want to fill. And in some cases might have stood in the way of you doing what you want to do. Lord, others of us may be here because of our own compulsive behavior, substance, relational struggles. We may be well into a process of recovery or we may have used right before walking in the room. Lord, we don't come to you at this time to make a commitment to do better. We come to you to just say we can't do it anymore. And we want to stop initiating and learn to receive. No, not learn to receive. Yield to receiving. We choose to reverse the flow of our will and surrender to you. Would you bring security where we've been empty, identity where we felt we're nobody, comfort and strength? And then would you bring it again in five minutes? And would you bring it again 20 minutes later? And would you bring it again at 9 o'clock? And would you bring it again tonight at midnight? And bring it again tomorrow morning when we wake up. (coughs) Lord, teach us what it means and what it's like to not just learn about surrender, but to change our posture and live a life of surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.